Uh, I wanted to start by asking you a question. I'm not going to ask for your answers, but who are you? Who are you? Uh, and uh, what I want you to do is actually to think of a few words that finish this sentence. I am. I am dot, dot, dot. What are some three or four words, two or three, four words that you would fill in that answer to? I am dot, dot, dot. What would you say? I'm going to give you 10 seconds to have a think about how you would answer that. I am. There was this uh, crazy true story back in 2006. Uh, now, there was a van that was filled, I think there was about nine people, nine college or high school students in it. Uh, and they crashed into this uh, tractor trailer and there were multiple deaths. Uh, there were two very similar looking victims in the crash, uh, both of them who suffered severe head injuries. Uh, one of them, they died at the scene and the other was left unable to communicate. Uh, now, in the confusion of the scene, uh, the two victims' identities were tragically mixed up. Uh, so there was a funeral that was held for one victim who they thought was a Whitney Serac, but who was in actuality a woman named Laura Van Rin. Uh, the mistaken identity was caused because they had very similar appearance. Uh, and, and at this funeral, 1,400 people attended. Uh, incredibly, it wasn't until about five weeks later that the survivor, who was actually Whitney, mistaken as Laura, uh, was asked to write down her name and to their shock wrote down the word Whitney, her name. So you can understand how understanding one's identity can really matter. Knowing who you are really changes what you do, how you live, what you think about yourself and really everything about you. Now, I don't know how you answered that question, I am. Maybe some of you, it was a difficult question to, uh, to answer. Uh, maybe you said something like, you know, I am rich, I am smart, I am blessed, I'm content, I'm happy. Or maybe some of you answered differently. Maybe some of you said, I'm tired, I'm weary. Maybe I'm discontent or sad. Maybe I'm fragile. Maybe I'm selfish or poor or insecure. See, the thing is we all have warped views of ourselves. We all have different upbringings. We're all influenced by our families and what they think of us. We're all uh, are influenced by our life events, the things that we've been through, what's happened to us, that shapes us. We're all affected by our achievements and our accomplishments. You know, often sometimes my wife, when we're at like a restaurant and we're trying something new, she'll ask me, will I like this? And then I'll have to eat it and then tell her if I think she will like it. Because somehow I know better than herself what she would like to eat. See, and sometimes it's funny because other people know us better than ourselves. I wonder if you were to tell someone close to you, what your answers were, I am so-and-so, if they would agree. And I wonder how that would matter to you. Today we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to hear what God thinks about us. In fact, we're going to hear about who we really are in Christ. 
We are doing the 21 days of prayer, and so in the second half of chapter 1, we're also going to hear Paul's prayer and what that has to do with what Paul has told us about who we are. Uh, In the first half, we understand our identity in Christ, and he outlines exactly what that means, who we are, and all the blessings that come part and parcel with this identity. Uh, And as we'll discover, it really is truly astounding. It is life-redefining. It is mind-blowing stuff. And because Paul knows how hard it is for us to understand these truths with our human minds, Paul prays that we would really, truly, and deeply know what all of this means for us. He prays that it would profoundly shape who we are, how we think, and how we act. It may be a prayer that we never even realize that we should be praying for ourselves and for those around us. So let's turn to God in prayer now and ask him to help us unpack what he wants us to learn today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to be able to share your word with brothers and sisters this morning. Father, I know that ultimately you know who we are. You created us and you've given us divine purpose. You know exactly who we are in Christ. And God, no matter what answers we have provided to you today, I pray that our minds would be changed this morning, that we would be founded in you, that you would help us to see uh, with the eyes that you see us with, that God, truly, we would understand who we are and all the spiritual blessings that you've given us through your Son. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and you can stay there for most of today's sermon. We'll be going there pretty often. Uh, Paul founded the church in Ephesus in about 52 AD, uh, and in two of his earlier missionary missionary journeys. Uh, Ephesus was an important port city, which is on the coast of modern-day Turkey. Uh, It was a very wealthy center for trade, and there were many foreigners coming and going. And it was heavily influenced by money and other gods, such as the goddess Artemis. Uh, You can read all about the church's beginning and the massive resistance that Paul faced there in Acts chapter 19. Uh, Paul likely wrote this letter to the Ephesians some years later while he was imprisoned in Rome. A man named Tychicus from Ephesus brought good news to Paul that the church was thriving. But we also learn later on in John's revelation that the church would later be chastised for having forsaken their first love in Revelation 2, verse 4. I'm going to invite Cass to come and read to us uh, this chapter. And I want you to take mental note of each time that Paul uses the phrase, in him or in Christ. Thanks, Cass. All right, reading from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which, is freely, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. 
With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the gospel, sorry, the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance under the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our, Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Thanks, Cass. After Paul's initial greetings in verses 1 and 2, he says this in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Praise God because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul then goes on and he tightly packs a huge amount of praise and a huge amount of theological truth as he explains what these blessings are in verses 4 to 14. In fact, in the Greek, and if you have a King James Version, you can actually see that this is all one long sentence, verses 4 to 14. So we're going to break it down and look briefly at what these spiritual blessings are. Here are a few of them that he lists. In verse 4, In him, before the creation of the worlds, we were chosen to be holy and blameless. In verse 5, Through Christ, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. In verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. In verse 11, in him we are chosen and predestined according to his plan. In verse 13, in Christ we are included when we heard the gospel of our salvation. And in verse 13 and 14, in him we were sealed by the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Blessing number one, before the world began, we were chosen to be holy and blameless. There's a lot here to unpack and... Uh, I'm going to leave actually a lot of it to more knowledgeable people than myself to explain. But perhaps the simplest thing that we can take away and understand is that God has chosen us. I remember back in high school, I once played on a selective basketball team. We had this one training session together, and then we would go on to play a knockout match. Uh, now, the coach actually didn't really think I was a very good player, and so she didn't even put me on the court uh, until the last few minutes of the game. Uh, in fact, she might not have even put me on at all if it wasn't for my other teammates who had actually complained and, and asked why I wasn't on the court as well. 
Uh, it's kind of besides the point, but we lost that game. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really not a great feeling when you are overlooked or when you are ignored. Uh, really, back then, it made me doubt myself. It made me doubt my talents, my worth, and, and even question myself. Uh, but at the same time, on the other hand, there was also something very comforting about being chosen, in a sense, by my teammates, who kind of barely knew me and, and yet vouched for me. Well, verse 4 tells us that God chose you. He chose you to be on his team. And not just be on his team to sit on the bench, but to be on his team and for you to get into the game. In his infinite wisdom, in his love and his grace, God chose you even before you existed. He didn't choose you based on your talents or your looks or your intelligence or your holiness. And so you don't need to feel ever insecure or worthless or overlooked or ignored ever again because God has chosen you. And the truth is, he is the one that really matters. Maybe today you feel like the whole world has forgotten you this morning. Maybe you feel like a fraud, pretending to be someone that you're not, just to get by. Maybe you think in the back of your mind that if people really knew who you were, they wouldn't like you. Well, God knows exactly who you are. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he has chosen you in Christ even before the world began. And he's chosen you to be holy and blameless, just like he is. He's chosen you to be set apart and blameless so that you can enjoy a personal relationship with your creator. That's blessing number one. Blessing number two, we're adopted to sonship. Verse five says that we are predestined for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. I remember a long time ago, I was leading youth group and I made an announcement at church one morning. And what I did is I, I got all the youth leaders to come and to stand in front of the church and, and I gave them a small gift. Uh, and, and the gift itself was uh, kind of like a small silver dessert bowl. I don't know why I got that, I guess because they were cheap. And, uh, and I had a word engraved on it. And I guess you could engrave silver balls. Um, and, uh, and so each leader that I gave this bowl to had a different word that had something to do with their identity in Christ. Uh, for example, someone might have had the word saved or redeemed or forgiven, something like that. And I remember I gave Ash uh, the one that had the word adopted on it. That's right, Ash, sorry to break it to you, but you are adopted. Um, maybe he threw it away, I don't know. Maybe his parents found it, maybe they threw it away. Um, but the reason I gave him that word is because of this verse uh, in verse 5. Uh, now, adoption in the first century is quite different to how we think of it today. Uh, back then, adoption was rarely ever done for children. Uh, instead, when there was a master who wanted to pass on his inheritance, he would need to find a legal heir, someone who could uh, inherit his stuff. Uh, so this master usually would adopt someone, um, yeah, often a trustworthy male or female slave, and they would be given full rights to his inheritance just as though they were his own biological children. Uh, in fact, in the process, uh, the adopted person would also lose whatever rights they had held in their original family. And Paul says that we are God's adopted children, which means that any of God's resources that are available to Christ are now also available equally to us. Just as God the Father unconditionally and irrevocably accepts Jesus, so too does he equally accept us, as his children. Jesus is our big brother. 
Your identity, no matter who you were before or what family you came from, no matter how warped your upbringing was, we are now completely transplanted into the family of God. And that's what it means to be adopted to sonship, to the praise of his glorious grace. Blessing number three, we have redemption in his blood, verse six. Now to redeem something is to gain possession of something in exchange for payment. Uh, we might redeem a gift voucher, for example, in exchange for a good or service. In ancient times, redemption primarily described the process of purchasing a slave's freedom from bondage. Uh, Paul will go on in chapter 2 to describe our spiritual state before Jesus, which is dead in our transgressions and sins. You see, outside of Christ, we're enslaved to our sinful nature. We're helpless to change it. We're guilty of breaking God's laws, and we're now subject to his judgment. There's literally nothing that we can do. We have no bargaining power and nothing to offer him. But because of God's grace, because he has redeemed us, he has bought for us our freedom from sin through the precious blood of Jesus. I shared this short illustration a couple of years ago about a young boy who lovingly crafted a small wooden boat. Uh, while he was playing with it, the wind picked up and, and carried the boat off down the stream. Years passed until one day, lo and behold, he saw his little boat sitting in a shop window with a price tag attached to it. And because he loved that boat, he went in and bought it back with his own money. That's what, kind of like what God has done for us in Jesus. You see, God's created us and he loved us, but in our, in our own sinfulness, we strayed from him. We rebelled against him and became slaves to our own sinful desires. And even though he created us and has every right to claim ownership over us, he chose to redeem us, to purchase our freedom back, no less than the cost of his only begotten son. And we no longer need to pay the penalty for our sin because Jesus has paid it all for us. We are the redeemed people of God, forgiven of our sin. Now amongst all these blessings that Paul has been sharing with us, he also reveals to us God's plan for the world, in verses 9 and 10, it says this, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now, when Paul uses the phrase, the mystery of God's will, he's not saying it's somehow like a crime that needs to be solved or, or a secret that needs to be deciphered. Rather, his will for us, uh, rather, his will is a truth that, although once hidden, has now been revealed in Christ. You see, God's will for creation is to bring everything in heaven and on earth under Christ. It was a mystery in the past because God's Messiah had not yet come. But now that Jesus has come, now that he has died and resurrected and ascended into heaven, it is now clearly proclaimed to all. Every person who is in Christ, whether, whether Jew or Gentile, of every tribe, nation, and tongue, will be united as one body with Christ as the head. At the appointed time, all people will bow before Jesus and recognize his authority and lordship, either willingly and lovingly, or whether because they have to. Once and for all, God will overcome all rebellion and all sin and bring us to be with him forever. That's the end goal for the universe, that God re would restore the right order of creation, putting Christ in charge over everything, all things in heaven and on earth. 
Blessing number four, we are sealed by his spirit. Verse 13 and 14 tell us that if we are in Christ, then we are marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. If we are in Christ, then the Holy Spirit now lives in us. He works inside of us, transforming us inwardly to become more and more like Jesus. The outworking of the Spirit in us is proof that our faith is genuine. The presence of the Holy Spirit within us is like a deposit or a down payment made on the purchase of a house. This deposit guarantees that the contract is binding and that the house must be exchanged. It is security and evidence that we are God's possession and that our inheritance in Christ can never be taken away from us. It gives us confidence for the future as we await Christ's return. So to recap so far, and I know there's a lot, we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We were chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. We are adopted into sonship. We hold the privileged position as children of God. We are redeemed through the blood of Christ, and we have our sins forgiven. We are now sealed by the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our future inheritance. That is who we are in Christ. And now armed with this information, Paul goes on to pray in verses 15 to the end of the chapter. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who, who fills everything in every way. Paul's just shared with us some very challenging truths. And I know there's a lot to take in. He's just told us who we are, what we have in Christ, and the plan for the universe unto eternity. It's no wonder that Paul now finds it appropriate to pray. And the crux of his prayer is this, that we might internalize these truths and that all these blessings would become real to us, that they would become alive in us, that we would know God and Jesus more intimately. Notice that Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is not just a once-off prayer. It's not like he got a message from this man called Tychicus and, and suddenly he thought, oh, I'd better pray for those Ephesians. No, even though he has very good reason to pray for them because of what he's heard and hearing about their faith and their love for others, Paul has been consistently praying for them over and over again. In verse 16, he says he's, he hasn't stopped giving thanks for them and he's continually remembering to include them in his prayers. In verse 17, the NIV tells us that he keeps asking. Elsewhere in other versions, it says he constantly asks, presenting his request to God on their behalf. You might be familiar with Luke 18, verse 1. I wonder if any of you are familiar with that verse. 
Uh, if you've been following along with the 21 days of prayer, then you, hopefully you'll know it off by heart. Anyone care to share what that verse is? All right, Brad seems to know. <laughs> then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Well done, you only had a whole week to memorize that verse. Understanding who we are in Christ is a journey. Every day as we walk faithfully with him, we discover more and more what that looks like. It keeps us grounded in our faith and helps us to dispel our human fears of rejection, of insecurity, of loneliness, or insignificance. That's why Paul consistently prays as he does and why we need to uphold one another in prayer. The first thing that Paul actually prays for is that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know God better. Notice that Paul doesn't just ask for wisdom and for revelation, but rather the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Uh, it's actually unclear from the Greek whether Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit or our own spirit. In the NIV, you'll probably see a footnote there saying that it could be either. Uh, either way, the wisdom and revelation can only be imparted to us when our spirits yield to the Holy Spirit. There is a big difference between knowledge and, as Paul puts it, wisdom or revelation. Knowledge is just information, and today that's all I can offer you. When you read the Bible or when you listen to this sermon, uh, all that can only come in the form of information or head knowledge. Uh, there were crowds who followed Jesus, who heard his words, who heard the Sermon on the Mount and his many teachings, and who even saw his miracles, and yet they did not receive, and they, all they received was information. They would later fall away. No doubt thousands, if not millions of people have read the Bible or parts of the Bible without it having any real impact on their lives. Unless the information that we hear is read and applied to our lives, that's all it will ever be just information, something that we've heard and will probably forget. Wisdom, on the other hand, is taking information and applying it. It's taking that knowledge of information, making use of it or experiencing it for yourself. They say that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit and that wisdom is choosing not to put it in a fruit salad. Joe has shared many times about the time he exercised wisdom when he let go of the pendulum in front of his face and allowed it to, to swing back towards him without flinching. And that's taking the knowledge of the physical laws of motion and putting it into practice. Revelation is the unveiling or the revealing of truth. We need the spirit of both wisdom and revelation so that we can be profoundly and deeply impacted by the truths that have been revealed to us. Unless this happens, knowledge for knowledge sake is not useful. In fact, it's counterproductive. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says that knowledge puffs up, while love builds up. Without love, knowledge might make us feel smart, it, may, it might make us look smart, but all that goes to do is build up our ego and pride. Knowing about God is also vastly different to knowing God personally or experiencing him relationally. Uh, people are always surprised when I tell them that I know Barack Obama. It's true, I know Barack Obama. Of course I know him. He just doesn't know me. You see, knowing someone relationally is completely different to knowing someone intellectually or factually. 
Uh, you can know my wife, Chris, by following her on Facebook or, or Instagram. Uh, but you'll never know Chris like I have, having been married to her and lived with her for 10 years. You don't know if this food she will like to eat or not, like I do. And Paul wants us to know God personally and intimately. He doesn't just want us to know about him. He doesn't just want us to know stuff. He wants us to experience him firsthand, the personal God who has bestowed all these blessings on us. And the amazing thing is that that is actually possible, that we can know God personally and intimately, and that we can have relationship with him because of Jesus. Without the spirit of wisdom and revelation, our hearts will remain unmoved. Paul develops this idea in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Did you know that you've got two sets of eyes? I'm not talking about your pair of reading glasses or sunglasses. Uh, but Paul says that we have head eyes, the eyes attached to our head, and we've also got heart eyes. We have physical eyes and spiritual ones. Today we sang, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. What did we mean when we sang those words? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 14 to 17, as he talks about the Pharisees. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused, they, heart, they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. When the Bible talks about our hearts, it represents the core of our being. It's what dictates our emotions and our affections, the things that we desire. The Pharisees couldn't see Jesus for who he really was. They knew more about God than anyone else at their time, but they couldn't recognize Jesus as the Son of God. It's because they could only see with their physical eyes, but not the spiritual ones. We also have two sets of ears, physical ears and spiritual ears. In Revelation, John repeats the phrase, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he says it seven times. They could hear with their ears attached to their heads, but their hearts were calloused. They couldn't understand with their hearts. To have the eyes of our heart enlightened, to see with our eyes and ears, is to be moved and deeply affected by the truths of the spiritual blessings that we've received in Christ. It's to have those truths come alive in our hearts and lives, that it would shape how we feel, how we think, the choices that we make, and the things that we do. And that's why it's so vital that we pray. Because head knowledge is not merely enough. Listening and coming to church or doing a Bible study is not enough. Because true knowledge of God can only be brought about when the spirit of wisdom and revelation works inside of us. Just as Paul does, just as Paul says, so that we may truly know God better. Paul prays that our eyes would be enlightened so that in verse 18 that we may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. The hope that we've been given in Christ is not wishful thinking. It's not like today when we look at the sky and say, well, I hope it stops raining this afternoon. 
Or maybe when we look at our investments and we say, we hope that they go up in price. The hope that we have instead is certain. It's a certainty that God will do everything that he has promised based on his faithfulness, based on his unfailing love and his unchanging character. The riches of his glorious inheritance are all the things that we are now entitled to in Christ as God's special possession. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You see, that includes all the spiritual blessings that we've covered, that we're chosen, that we're adopted, that we're redeemed, that we're forgiven, that we're sealed, and so many more of his promises that are found throughout Scripture. And lastly, Paul prays that we would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. What is this unparalleled power for? How do I access such power? Is it so that I can lift 10 cars? Well, to find out more about his power, we look at the second prayer that Paul makes in Ephesians in chapter 3, verses 17 and 21, starting from halfway through verse 17. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is a work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This power that's given to us is for us and it's for the church, and it's so that we can know and grasp the vastness of God's four-dimensional love. Uh, I think back to the times when I used to go rock climbing or bouldering. And because I don't do it very often, after about half an hour, my arms and my fingers are completely exhausted. They're too weak to grasp even the steering wheel when I drive home. And I don't have the power to keep climbing. But Paul says we need power and strength to continue to grasp the greatness of God's love. If we didn't have such power, then we would dismiss and give up and dismiss it as a fairy tale, or we'd think that we'd somehow need to earn such love as though that was somehow possible instead. You see, it takes both courage and power to believe that there is an infinitely wise, all-powerful, ever-present God who loves you and cares for you just as you are, especially when you don't feel it or see it or even feel like you deserve it. It takes power to realize that his love reaches me no matter the number of lengths that I run away from him, and no matter how far the depths I've sunk into. It takes divine power to trust in the sufficiency of his grace, love, and mercy when I'm flawed by grief or heartache or pain or loss. Unfortunately for us, we have access to such life-giving resurrection power by his Spirit to comprehend and realize this all-encompassing love. Our powerful God, who can do more than all we ask or imagine, exerts this same resurrection power within us for his own glory in both the church and in Christ Jesus. And as we read the rest of Ephesians, it becomes clear what this resurrection power is also required for. 
It's required to make us who were once dead in our trespasses now alive in Christ. This power is made available to us daily so that we can continually put off our old way of life and its selfish desires and instead replace them, put on new selves created to be holy like God. We need God's power and strength to adorn the full armor of God so that we can be victorious in the spiritual battle that we fight each and every day. Physical strength may be impressive, but the resurrection power of God is infinitely, eternally, and incomparably greater. And finally, in verses 19 to 23, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and pointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who, fulfill, who fills everything in every way. Paul concludes the chapter by reminding us of Christ's current exalted position. Christ is given the place of highest honor. He's seated at the Father's right hand. His position is far superior to any rulers, authorities, powers, or dominions. His name is greater than any other name, both now and forevermore. He's not only the head of the church, he's also actively shaping and maturing the church, preparing his bride for his return. It's not by coincidence that the name of Jesus, or a reference to him or his power or his blessings, is made in practically every one of today's verses. And actually, in most of them, he's, he's named more than once. Every spiritual blessing we have is in Christ. There are no spiritual blessings outside of him. The summation of the universe, when the times have reached their fulfillment, will be the universal exaltation of the risen Christ, every tongue confessing his lordship. If you remember nothing else today, remember that your identity is wrapped up completely in this Jesus. But if you're like me in this 21 days of prayer journey, then reading this passage might cause you to think, hmm, my prayers for other people are not really quite like Paul's at all, are they? I'm not talking about the way that he uses language or the form in which he prays. But when I think about the majority of my prayers, especially for other people, they're usually asking for some sort of physical or emotional need to be met. Maybe I know about some situation they're in, or, or maybe they've asked me for a specific thing to pray for. Paul, on the other hand, his prayer for the Ephesians really targets their spiritual needs. And that causes me to question, how much more important are our spiritual needs over our physical or even emotional ones? How much would of all these other requests that I've been making, how much would they have already been met, perhaps, or even rendered unnecessary had I been praying like Paul instead? If only I'd been consistently praying that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that God would open the eyes of their hearts to the hope they have in Jesus, that they might know the incomparably great resurrection power of Christ that lived within them. Church, let us intercede for one another spiritually. Of course, we cannot neglect to pray for one another's physical, emotional needs, but let's make their relationship with God and their spiritual well-being the number one intercessory prayer and priority for them. 
May there not be a single person in GCC who is not covered by name in these types of prayers today. May there not be a single person who does not know intimately their position, their identity in Christ. You are chosen. You are adopted to sonship. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are sealed by the Spirit to the praise of God the Father in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot help but just be amazed by all that you have done for us, by the fact that you would send your Son and that you would give us access to all these spiritual blessings. God, you declare in your word that we are chosen, that we are adopted to sonship, that we are redeemed and forgiven and sealed by your Spirit. God, what else do we need? Father, we thank you that you are more than sufficient for us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would help us turn this information, this knowledge, into real understanding, into, and into something that just uh, shapes the way that we live, shapes the way that we think, that would be so ingrained in us that nothing could ever tear it away from us, that nothing could ever distract us from these truths that you've declared over our lives. Lord, I pray like Paul that you would open our eyes, that God, you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know these truths deeply and internally, that God, no circumstance, nothing that could ever happen to us, nothing that anyone else could ever say to us or about us would ever affect this understanding that we have in Christ. And Father, I pray that you would give us the power to do so. Lord, I thank you that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago now lives in us. God, may we be floored by that fact. May we be totally consumed, unable to comprehend, and yet still have access to such power. Father, I pray that it would transform us from the inside out. And Lord, I pray that we as your church family would also pray for one another, that God, when we are struggling with these ideas, when we cannot comprehend the love that you have for us, when we're tempted to think otherwise, when we're tempted to believe lies that are not from you, Lord, I pray that we would uphold one another in prayer, that God, we'd support one another, knowing that you are the God who does immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine according to your power that does work within us. Glory to you in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. Amen.